In June 2015, WikiLeaks dumped a new motherload of secret documents, more than 60,000 cables from inside the Saudi Foreign Ministry. These cables, declared WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange, lift the lid on an increasingly erratic and secretive dictatorship that has not only celebrated its 100th beheading this year, but which has also become a menace to its neighbors and itself. The Saudi cables didn't make the biggest media splash at the time. Much of what they revealed was pretty much assumed throughout the world, that Saudi leaders were nervous about pro-democracy street protests during the Arab Spring, that they feared their mortal enemies in Tehran, and that the Saudi regime tried to co-opt the Arab media by purchasing mass subscriptions to publications in Beirut, Damascus, Abu Dhabi, and elsewhere, a way to make them de facto investors and influence their content. But one of those cables has eerie new relevance in light of the disclosures about what happened to Jamal Khashoggi, the dissident Saudi journalist who was murdered inside the Saudi consulate after rebuffing earlier efforts to persuade him to return to the kingdom. The cable involved another prominent U.S.-based Saudi dissident named Ali Ahmed. It directed that Saudi embassy officials in Washington conduct surveillance of Ahmed and a think tank he had started called the Institute for Gulf Affairs. It turns out that was only one element in a years-long campaign by Saudi officials to neutralize Ahmed arresting members of his family, stripping him of his passport, spying on him at events in Washington, and denouncing him as a terrorist after he too turned down efforts to lure him back to the kingdom. He's our guest on today's Buried Treasure. I'm Michael Isikoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News. And I'm Dan Clydman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News. You know, Ali Ahmed is a guy I've known for years. He's very typical of a lot of people you meet in Washington, a dissident, from, uh, exiled dissident from authoritarian governments uh, overseas who shows up at think tank panels, gets quoted in newspaper articles, but doesn't get a lot of attention in Washington. But back home in their home countries, People are paying close attention to what Ali Ahmed and his fellow dissidents are saying in Washington. And uh, we sometimes lose track of just how closely these people are feeling the heat from their home governments. I think it's a lesson we're all being reminded of in light of the Jamal Khashoggi murder. Yeah, you know, I, I've run into so many of these uh, kinds of uh, characters in, in D.C. at uh, think tank events and conferences, and um, you know, you never you never realize uh, that you know a lot of them are are essentially hunted um, by their um, you know by uh, by the governments of the countries uh, where they've had to flee from, um, and you know, increasingly um, in uh, in you know with technology and in the in the digital world, um, I, I'm sure it's easier for those repressive regimes to keep track. Um, of, uh, of 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 dissidents, um, and it just shows. I mean, you know, the Khashoggi case is—it's so grotesque. Uh, the crime is so horrifying. Um, but what I think most people don't realize, as you said, um, is that this kind of thing there's, you know, there's a pattern here. This kind of thing goes on and on and on in terms of people uh, who uh, are you know victims of of uh, this kind of repression and efforts to uh, squash uh, their. Uh, their free speech, and in some cases, um, as you know, we will hear from Ali. Um, you know, being in real uh, 
you know, peril um, and their families being um, uh, persecuted and um, living in a state of kind of constant insecurity. Yeah, the family leverage is really important to remember. All of these people, uh, these dissidents, do have family members back home. And, uh, you know, one of the more chilling images uh, that has just come out uh, is the picture of uh, Jamal Khashoggi's son uh, back in Riyadh being forced to shake hands with the crown prince MBS himself, the guy everybody uh, in Washington suspects uh, likely ordered his father's murder. And if you take a look at that uh, at that picture that was released by the uh, Saudis today and you see the expression on uh, on the sun, it's um, yeah, it's it's pretty harrowing. Pretty pretty chilling. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, let's uh, let's bring in Ali now because uh, he's got a great perspective on all this. Hey, Ali Ahmed, thanks um, for uh, thanks yes. for joining us. And thank you for having me, sir. Thanks. You know, we were just talking about that uh, image today of uh, Jamal Khashoggi's son uh, shaking hands with the crown prince uh, in yes. Riyadh. Uh, a pretty harrowing picture. And uh, in light of your own experience, and particularly uh, what you've what you've written and told us about uh, what the Saudis have done to your family. What what was your reaction when you saw that picture? This is a, a very typical Saudi behavior. As we say in Arabic, they kill the victim and uh, they wail in his uh, funeral. Uh, the, the Saudi monarchy is, they are very good at uh, at this, at this playing politics with any issues. So they will, uh, uh, they will give the world the impression that they are kind and magnanimous, but at the same time they would uh, d- destroy uh, the same person. I have many friends who were received by by uh, the prince, and then they couldn't even make it. They were taken to jail. Uh, let's be reminded here that uh, Jamal Khashoggi actually met Mohammed bin Salman personally, and he invited him to the palace for a meeting uh, a few years ago, and which uh, Mr. Khashoggi shared on his Twitter account. So you are looking at people who are uh, who can give you two faces. Uh, that's the name uh, of, of of the game. That's the nature of the of the monarchy. Whatever uh, uh, works, they will do. Tell us a little about your own story and how the Saudis have uh, uh, trailed you, spied on you, uh, uh, tried to lure you back to the kingdom. Uh, just walk us through your own experience. You were you're you're from Saudi Arabia. You were born you came to the United States to study as a college student, correct? Yes, I, my story with the Saudi government goes ways back before I was born. You know, it's uh, it's a story of the arrest and detention and torture of my uh, oldest uncle, who's dead now, uh, in the 60s. So when I was a yeah, young uh, infant, and uh, it continued with the arrest of, of my, uh, the, basically my entire family, myself when I was 14, my brother, my father, my, my mother, the entire family. And over the years, my, uh, my, my brothers were arrested again and tortured for years without really any uh, real cause. Uh, and uh, we are not isolated. This is very common in Saudi Arabia. If you, if they just have a name, they arrest you and they torture you and they accuse you of things that you didn't even do. Uh, uh, and that which actually drove me uh, to come to the United States because I, they were going to arrest me again. So I fled. And uh, where could I go? U.S. was the only place because I wanted to finish my education. 
There is no other way uh, to do that. So I came to the U.S. because I was fleeing Saudi Arabia, and it happened not once, it happened twice. And I was forced to stay here and uh, I to finish my education. During that time, I, I became an activist. I organized events uh, and written and started publications uh, about human rights and other issues. Uh, uh, during that time, they tried everything. They tried to pay me off. Uh, I met with seniors, senior members of the ruling family uh, um, here in Washington, uh, which offered me to to seek uh, forgiveness from the king and mercy, and I will be given a large amount of money. I will be returned home safely. And I've actually had done that. I would be safe, but I would not be free. Just a little context. You're, you come from a Shia Muslim family. Uh, of course, the Saudi regime is, uh, is Sunni Muslim. Was that the basic source of the tension uh, no. And the reason no. they targeted you? Not, obviously not. Uh, you know, there are many Shia who live there and they are not arrested or targeted. My activity, uh, which is not based on any sectarian uh, vision, is I'm, I'm, I'm a critic uh, uh, of the Saudi monarchy, of the regime itself. It's nature. I think it's outdated and it does not, cannot live beyond uh, at this modern age. And uh, the entire population uh, the Sunni population is also are also oppressed. So this is not a sectarian issue. This is an issue of uh, building a better nation for for our people, uh, regardless of their background. And I also come happen to to come from the largest tribe in the country, which is very important to me. Uh, and so the, the idea is this is Shia versus Sunni is not true. This is an idea about uh, giving rights uh, and to everyone in the country, regardless, even if they are not Muslim, uh, as long as they are citizens, that they should have the right. So this is not an issue of Shia. Yes, Shia and Saudi Arabia suffer greater than maybe their Sunni counterparts in certain areas, at least. Uh, but this is not about that. Ali, I, 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 I think maybe you, you might be able to explain to, because I think we take this for granted a little bit, uh, but explain to our listeners um, why the regime, why the royal family um, has always resorted to these kinds of re repressive uh, tactics. Is it that they feel like they have uh, such a tenuous hold on power uh, that, that, uh, that uh, any, this kind of criticism um, you know, can be so threatening? Because we've talked about, in the case of Jamal Khashoggi on this show, he was not a revolutionary. He was not a terrorist. Uh, he was a you know, a critic um, from within, um, someone who had close relationships with uh, the government and the royal family. Um, so what do you think um, is the reason for uh, this, these, these, these tactics? Yes, look, the Saudi monarchy, the way they talk to us is different than the way they talk to you in the West. The way they talk to us, they say to us, this land is ours, ruling family. Our grandfather took it by the sword. And anyone who wants to take it away from us, they have to 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 kill us, and uh, you are our servant. Whatever you give, what you get is from our pocket. We give you what you. So this is the view of a monarchy, and it's it's increasingly becoming so with the younger generation who were born and uh, in, in this you know in this wealth. So the entitlement of the monarchy is that the population of the country are mere servants. And uh, at, at the disposal of the monarchy, at the pleasure of the monarchy, the only 
thing that the the population can do is be thankful uh, for being uh, under the 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 magnanimity of this monarchy uh, uh, they do not accept anything but absolute loyalty especially from their uh, employees and loyalists mr khashoggi for most of his life was a, a monarchy loyalist and he continued to be uh, a, a, a supporter of the monarchy. He never said the monarchy is not good. He said there are few mistakes. Yes, he said that, but he never said the monarchy should go or uh, he did not uh, absolve himself of what he called uh, an allegiance, uh, an obligation to the king or the monarchy. And he expressed that many times. So in my view, I don't think uh, an allegiance to um, a person is, is right. This is we're beyond that in this age. Uh, we need a, a different government. We need a, a monarchy, not a monarchy, we need a republic. Uh, uh, so he was a loyalist and that actually gave him credibility with the international media, with the American media. And that's what made him more dangerous because he could have been an example of a palace defector. Uh, and that creates greater danger than just a dissident like myself. Tell us about that um, uh, Saudi uh, foreign ministry cable that was uh, released by WikiLeaks uh, a few years ago uh, and uh, wh how what it said about what they wanted the Saudi embassy to do about you and your think tank. Uh, the Saudi embassies around the world have always been a place for the Saudi intelligence to operate. But this cable that came out in 2013, it showed that the king himself at the time, King Abdullah, requested the state that the in Saudi intelligence and uh, the the Ministry of Foreign Affairs instructing the ambassador here in Washington, uh, Adil Jubair at the time, to uh, surveil uh, my activity. And it noted that because we don't have so much money, he, he should not be posed a problem, but nevertheless, uh, report on his activities and, and see what we can do about him. So this clearly showed uh, surveillance and spying. And I'm not the only one. Actually, there are other cases, but this continued until recently with uh, getting emails that showed and proved to me there is uh, an active element could be Americans too, American agents who report on uh, our writing or our activities, and they, the Saudi government is watching closely. So, did they did they in fact spy on you? I believe so. I think there is a, a gentleman who worked for us for a while, and he was working for them. So the problem is, how can we prove it? It's, uh, it's beyond our resources. But you also wrote about an incident that took place when you attended a uh, an event at the American Enterprise Institute. Yes, sir. I attended this earlier this year in the spring, and I was in the audience. But somehow the Saudi government got notified that I was there, and they used a, a clip from the video to send me an email uh, to try to hack my account. And that showed, that proved to me that somebody was there who told them Al-Ahmed was there, uh, and this is the video, and they used that in the Saudi intelligence uh, and cyber warfare uh, departments. To, to try to hack my account because this gives me... This was a phishing, uh, a phishing, a phishing email. Yes, sir. Uh, phishing but, be email. but before that, uh, they used more direct approaches where they were trying to lure you back to uh, Saudi Arabia and uh, you had meetings with them in the same way that they were uh, trying to uh, bring uh, Khashoggi back to Saudi Arabia, offering jobs, say you'll, you'll have a good life. Um, and uh, as I recall from uh, a story you wrote, um, you said... Uh, First, you need to apologize to my mother. Yes, I. What, would, what did I, they you know, say? I had no intention of of going back, uh, 
uh, and uh, I had to uh, ask for something. I know that they will decline. But the idea was to say, to tell them that, you know, this is not about money. Money is not important to, to you know, to, because the Saudi monarchy believe for a long time that, you know, because they had many American, even presidents, take money and they will do anything for them. So the idea for me was like, I don't I don't want money. I don't want your money. I want you to apologize to my mother. That's more important to me. And I know that they're going to, they're going to decline. Uh, and uh, uh, that's why I asked it. Uh, so uh, they offered me, and uh, to be honest, if you compare the two, here, Mr. Khashoggi met with the ambassador, the son of the king, but I met with the with the brother of the king, which is a higher thing. So because they realize the importance, my importance being in Washington, having access to the media, being able to speak the Washington uh, language, that to them, that's very, very dangerous. And that's why they killed Khashoggi, because he has critical views. It's because he now has a lot to influence their image, something they protect uh, you know, strongly. By the way, um, Ali, I, I, I thought I heard you say, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, that, that speculate anyway, that there may have been American agents working with Saudi intelligence. Did I hear you right? I, I'm, I'm very certain. Uh, who would else would, would tell them? Uh, you know, we had about 100 people in that uh, American Enterprise Institute uh, um, event, and it had to be somebody in the audience who uh, recognizes me and told them or wrote a report saying Al Ahmed was there and uh, uh, he he was in attendance. Uh, so that that, that video was uh, was uh, you know uh, looked on online because you cannot Google that you cannot Google it. It's but, somebody has to be in the room. But do you mean? That. But do you mean that Saudi intelligence recruited uh, yes. an agent in the United States as opposed to? U.S. intelligence working with uh, with the Sa- with the Saudis. Yeah, the first one. Okay. I, I, you know, I know, I know that's the gentleman who worked for us, and now he's an American citizen, uh, and he certainly, definitely reported to 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 them, and he is getting a, now a, a really, really nice uh, salary for for consulting to, for um, the embassy. Uh, Ali, you've been. Trying to call attention for years to uh, the excesses of the Saudi regime, its repression of of dissidents, its treatment of women. Uh, you've been very outspoken about this, and yet um, your voice uh, has been drowned out by all the uh, hired guns by the Saudis in Washington, the high-priced lobbyists, the PR people. Um, uh, and the and the think tanks who get Saudi money, but it does seem that the Khashoggi incident, the murder of of this uh, Washington Post contributor, uh, has changed things dramatically. We have think tanks like the Middle East Institute saying, uh, at least for now, they're not going to take more Saudi money. You have lobbyists, big lobbying firms, turning down, uh, rejecting their Saudi contracts, uh, canceling them. Um, Do you see this as a break point in U.S.-Saudi relations? I don't see it. I think uh, when you have, uh, for example, the Middle East Institute or Let's try uh, the Wilson Center, which is a public institution. They have uh, basically silenced the, vo- the alternative voices on Saudi Arabia. Uh, tomorrow, the Wilson Center is having discussion on Jamal Khashoggi and, and the Saudi-American relations. Guess what? Not a single voice from, you know, from us, from our people in that. They have never had that. 
and I have raised it, and I used the uh, Wilson Center because I've raised it privately with them. I said, you know, to be respectful, to be have to have a critical and credible discussion, you must bring all the parties, all the point of views, or at, that are at least available. And they basically uh, danced around this issue. And tomorrow they're doing that. Not a single person. They're all American and uh, one pro-UAE hired uh, mouthpiece. So here is really, there is a lot of dishonesty. And this is this is basically stealing public money to do the wrong thing. And um, Middle East Institute, they are trying just to deflect criticism by pretending the same people who supported the monarchy now are pretending to be, oh, we are concerned and we're freezing. The freezing is that that means that they will take, they will unfreeze it later. It's very typical. We know that the tactics of these people who are now being interviewed on all these uh, major uh, or mainstream media uh, pretending that to be concerned about this issue. The same people who are supporting Saudi crimes in Yemen and other, uh, uh, you know, like the blockade in Qatar now suddenly are concerned about one man's fate. This is really uh, uh, very disturbing to to uh, that this is happening. Uh, many even in the in in the uh, in the previous administrations have said nothing and and Jamal Khashoggi yet yeah. they criticize Trump for uh, on it. It's it's really it's really disturbing. You know, we've talked about uh, the Saudis, uh, the Saudi money flow that went to the Trump International Hotel right after uh, uh, Trump was elected. The Saudis began uh, flying in veterans from around the country to lobby against the uh, new law that allowed uh, uh, the families of 9-11 victims to sue the Saudis. Uh, and uh, the Saudis were trying to overturn that. They brought veterans in. They put them up at the uh, they put them up at the Trump Hotel. Of course, MBS had this very close relationship with uh, Jared Kushner in the White House. Uh, and uh, but it's 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 been a bipartisan phenomenon. Uh, you and I spoke a few years ago when I did the story about how the Saudis had hired Tony Podesta, the yes. brother of John Podesta, then then the Clinton campaign chairman, uh, and, uh, under a hundred forty thousand dollar a month contract to lobby for the Saudis. Uh, and then Tony Podesta immediately held a fundraiser for Hillary Clinton uh, right after signing that contract. Uh, probably would have done anyway, but it was an example of, of, of how the Saudis sought to influence. But one thing that interested me about that story when I got back and looked at it, it was this guy, Saud al-Qahtani, who signed the contract uh, for yes. that lobbying operation by the Podesta group. Uh, and he is the same guy, Saud al-Qahtani, who just... <laughs> has been fired um, over the Khashoggi murder. Um, what do you make of that, and what do you make of his role? Uh, Saud Ghattani is in charge. He's the MBS right-hand man when it comes to the media and uh, lobbying abroad. Uh, and uh, not only uh, the John Podesta, but the Arabia Foundation, Saprak, falls fall under his control. He's the, the, there, uh, the guy who writes the checks and, and send the orders in. Uh, and I want to point one thing. Before that uh, Podesta uh, uh, contract uh, was signed, this is something for Mueller to look at, you know. Uh, uh, Mr. Clinton met with King Salman in, in, in the Four Seasons Hotel in September of 2016. Right. Something so we pointed out at the time, the, yes. Yeah, so uh, this, these are things are not, you know, not connected. They are connected. And that is an involvement in, in the election. 
But they did it during 2004 with John Kerry too. But the FBI couldn't get down some evidence. That's why they raided Corvus. You have Saudi, not only Russian, Saudi involvement of American presidential elections that nobody has talked about. And nobody, not Mr. Miller or Mueller or others have, have even, uh, they didn't raise any question about it. And that's very disturbing again. Ali, um, we're, we're going to have to wrap up, but I have two questions. Uh, uh, quick questions for you. Uh, one following up on what Mike was talking about um, with Mr. Katani. Uh, do you believe that uh, MBS uh, ordered the murder of uh, of uh, Jamal Khashoggi? I, I do. I absolutely think Mr. MBS uh, is the, the person who ordered it. Uh, in Saudi Arabia, especially in the government uh, uh, circles, these high circles, uh, none, no, nothing like this could be done and organized uh, that is across different uh, ministries without the approval from the royal court. Now, when they say the royal court means either the king or uh, the president of the court, which is uh, Mohammed bin Salman, because you require the Ministry of Defense involvement, you require uh, uh, these different uh, officers from different departments, you require the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, and nobody has talked about Adil Jubair and his role here, because that is the the, the foreign ministry uh, you know, property, and you need the foreign minister to to give instructions to the council to allow uh, this operation to take place. So not only Mbez, but Adil Jubair as well is definitely involved in this because at least he's responsible because this is the Ministry of Foreign Affairs property, and the in the council there is his employee. Uh, so this is this is an official operation. It's not a rogue operation like some people would like us to believe. And, and finally, in the wake of this uh, extrajudicial killing, uh, do you feel safe in Washington, D.C.? Have you had to take any extra uh, uh, security precautions for yourself? Uh, I have been always looking over my shoulder because, again, they tried to, they spied on me, they tried to lure me to Malaysia and Lebanon, even to Turkey. So I keep my movements very you know, low profile and I have taken as much uh, uh, you know, security measures as I can. Every day when I go into my car, I think it's going to blow up, honestly. So this is this never escaped my mind. Yeah, so I, I could have, have been killed. It could have been me in that consulate if I had done the same. If I had uh, spoken to Jamal Khashoggi, if he had asked me about this, I would say, don't go. This is what will happen to you. Because I know the nature of the Saudi government. This is what they do every weekend. They cut people's head in the street. This is basically a public execution for the followers of the monarchy. So they would not uh, dare uh, and, uh, uh, you know, uh, seek asylum or, or defect, uh, you know, uh, 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 outside the country. Well, this is sobering stuff. Um, and uh, we, we wish you the very best and, and, and good luck. And thank you so much for coming on Skullduggery. Thank you Thanks so much lot, for, for inviting me. Thank you. Thank yeah. you, Mike. Well, that was a pretty harrowing account from uh, Ali Ahmed, the idea that he goes into his car every morning and worries about whether it's going to blow up uh, is um, is pretty chilling and makes you wonder how many people like Ali face those same uh, worries every day because of their uh, political stance in opposition to their uh, home government and in this case to the Saudi government. But I do have to say... 
His reference to Adel Aljaber was uh, pretty interesting yeah. for uh, for us since yeah. we've known Adel Aljaber for years. Uh, back, he's now the Saudi foreign minister. He was the Saudi ambassador uh, in Washington, and before that, he was sort of the uh, de facto uh, uh, Saudi spinner in town uh, to give us the Saudi perspective on whatever was going on. Yeah, uh, you know, we used to, he was a you know, sort of a fixture on the social circuit in Washington. We'd see him at at parties all the time. Uh, I think he used to hang out in uh, at Cafe Milano in Georgetown. Um, well, I've got a story about that. All right, well, we'll get to that in a, get to that in a second. Uh, okay. But um, what was uh, striking to me, um, uh, and I have not really heard this before uh, in the context of this Khashoggi story, is that uh, Ali uh, pointed the finger directly at Adel Al Jaber uh, as the foreign minister. Uh, that uh, he has to bear responsibility uh, for this grisly act. Um, and, and, you know, it, it is it's very much at odds with uh, the, uh, you know, the, Adel, uh, the, the image that Adel Al-Jaber projected when we would see him uh, at various uh, social functions and parties in Washington. And you'll remember the line, I mean, with a, you know, a, a kind of a twinkle in the eye and a, and a pretty good sense of irony, you know, we, when we would ask him about some of the more controversial things that his regime would do, he would look at us and kind of shrug his shoulders and say, why are you asking me about these things? I am just a simple Bedouin, <laughs> yes, you know? Yes. And so uh, I, I thought yeah. about that when, when I heard his name mentioned, just a well, simple yeah. Bedouin. Yeah, I remember uh, spending uh, election night, late election night in 2004, I think it was, uh, at Cafe Milano with Lloyd Grove, uh, my old colleague from the Washington Post, now with the Daily Beast, and he was with the Daily News, and Adel. Uh, and uh, this is, you know, the results were already in. Uh, we knew George W. Bush was going to be elected. Uh, we closed down the place at 2 or 3 in the morning, and uh, Lloyd and I were looking for a ride home, and the big limo came for Adel to take him back to his uh, 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 Saudi-provided home. But, um, you know, he was always very genial guy, but, uh, you know, obviously was in service of a regime that that was quite oppressive and uh, and quite questionable. I thought it was really interesting that uh, he is the Saudi foreign minister. He's usually the first out there to do the spin for the Saudis when some big uh, controversy erupts. Uh, and for the first two weeks after Khashoggi, he was absolutely silent. You never, you didn't hear a word about Adel. He didn't uh, say a peep in the media. And then just in the last few days, he has reemerged, affirming that Khashoggi was murdered, saying they are still looking into it, and they're going to make sure this kind of thing never happens again. Well, uh, you know, I, I guess he's a good uh, PR man in the sense that uh, if you don't have anything that plausible that you can say, right. uh, you, you don't talk. Um, yeah. uh, whereas, uh, you know, some of the other uh, spinning that was coming out of um, Riyadh uh, was uh, was pretty implausible and um, I, I think did not it did not help the cause. But anyway, yeah, it just I, goes to show that, you know, in, in Washington, D.C., uh, which seems like a pretty civilized place. You never know who you're going to be rubbing shoulders with uh, at <laughs> parties. Right. Uh, right. And I do have to say, uh, you know, I 
talk to him. Genial is amiable. He's always nice to talk to. I think we might have run into him at a at a CIA holiday party a few years ago, and he right. talked about how he wanted to get together. Of course, he. I remember that we did. Yeah, That's right. Yeah, we never were able to follow up on that, or he didn't respond. But it is uh, uh, it is interesting that in uh, Ali's account, it was uh, that WikiLeaks uh, Saudi cable uh, uh, directing that the Saudi embassy spy on Ali Ahmed that happened while Otto Aljaber was the Saudi ambassador in Washington. Something we should uh, we should remember. Uh, at this time. And last um, thing I'll say about Adel Al-Jaber is um, he would make an excellent guest on Skullduggery. Uh, <laughs> a, a, a Skullduggery is a subject uh, that um, he uh, clearly knows a thing or two about. All right. Well, we'll extend the invite and see what we get. <laughs> okay. Thanks to Ali Ahmed for joining us on this episode of Buried Treasure. Don't forget to subscribe to Skullduggery on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And tell us what you think. Leave a review. We'll talk to you on Friday. Thank you.